Hello, this is Andrew Jones. Uh, I'm one of the hosts of Know Thy Shelf. This first episode is a little bit weird, but different than what we will be doing in the future, mostly because this is the first podcast we recorded and it was a test run. Uh, we hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, the podcast name is Know Thy Shelf, uh, rather than the one introduced within the episode. Uh, without further ado, enjoy the podcast. I'm Chris Vandenberg. No, I'm Andrew Jones. Laura Moore. Uh, Jordan Nussbaum. And this week we are discussing George Lukács' theory of the novel. Lukács' work builds on Marx and Hegel's dialectical theory and earned him the reputation of being one of the founders of what is known as Western Marxism. That is, a Marxism which defines itself partly in opposition to the interpretation purported by Orthodox Soviet Marxism. The work which cemented that is one of his two most widely read works, History and Class Consciousness, published in 1923. The other work is the one that we'll be discussing today. It is ostensibly less political, titled as a work of literary theory, but would be a mistake to assume that the realm of aesthetics is somehow separate from politics for Lukács. The theory of the novel understands literary form as being inextricably linked to the historical and philosophical character of the ages in which they emerge. Early Greece, the age of Homer's epic, is particularly unique. It was, quote, metaphysically small, unquote, and characterized by no interiority. There was a complete identification with the world, no subject-object problematic. A character's aims and purposes are thus identical to those purported by society, and one feels at home in them. A similar, although different, phenomena occurred with Dante's Divine Comedy. But once one's life experience, concrete reality, or their imminence of being, no longer lines up with the transcendental structures of the social totality, one's aims are no longer clearly given. In such an experience, one is transcendentally homeless. Such an experience, Lukács argues, is captured by the novel form. The primary difference between the epic and the novel is not due to intentions on the part of the author, but the given historical philosophical realities with which the authors were confronted. The novel is the epic in an age which, in which the extensive totality of life is no longer directly given, in which the imminence of meaning in life has become a problem, yet which still thinks in terms of totality. While the epic gives form to totality of life that is rounded from within, the novel seeks to uncover and construct the concealed totality of life. Due to the fragmented, tota- due to the fragmented nature of social totalities which have characterized the Western world since the age of the epic, Imminence of being is attained not when made identical to transcendental structures, but instead with, in which its absence is exposed. The novel thus, quote, is thus, quote, the representative art form of our age because the structural categories of the novel const- constitutively coincide with the world as it is today. In the second half of the book, Lukács further develops the theory of the novel by typologizing different types of ways in which the inconsumerability of the individual with the world is exposed ones in which the soul is either too narrow, as in the case of abstract idealism, or too broad, as can be found in more romantic literature. While the hero of abstract idealist literature is doomed to be grotesque due to an elevation of ideals far too abstracted from fractured concrete reality, what he calls romantic literature of disillusionment more closely represents the possibility of a life capable of producing its own content out of itself. 
Goethe in particular comes close to representing the necessity of finding the demands of the soul in the structure of society via a community of men, although for Lukács he ultimately falls back on the bourgeois status quo. Ultimately, it is Tolstoy that comes closest to representing the transcendental loci of our age, as consisting of several realities, nature, convention, and marginal aesthetic moments where something like a true life is momentarily glanced. These marginalized aesthetic moments thus hint to what could be a renewed epic, but for Lukács, the novel, and indeed art itself, cannot be this agent. In reflecting on this work decades later, Lukács criticized it in detail. Indeed, one would be pressed to find an author who dismissed their own work so aggressively. Here, he claims the typology of the novel forms are too general to fully comprehend the important singularity of each novel, and it puts the authors in conceptual straitjackets. He calls the approach of the book an arbitrary synthetic method, which was part of the fashionable method of the intellectual science school at the time, but leads to what he calls upside-down views of the authors and the novels it represents. He defends his efforts as the search at the time for, quote, a general dialectic of literary genres that was based upon the essential nature of aesthetics categories and literary forms, looking for a more intimate connection between category and history that he found in Hegel, unquote, but feels in retrospect that it cut the concrete short, did not fully recognize that left ethics and right epistemology is a synthesis that does not effectively serve as opposition to the status quo. The author was not looking for a new literary form, he claims, but for a new world. This book, he warns, will not serve as a useful guide, it will only disorientate. Yet we are left asking, is the theory of the novel the failure that Lukács later makes it out to be? How useful is this understanding of the con connection between totality and life as represented in the novel and epic? Are we still in the age of the novel? Are we doomed to be transcendentally homeless? So let's talk. Thanks, Chris. So do we want to start with the preface first? I mean, it feels like... I think that was pretty it's well almost, covered. The preface is almost the epilogue. Like it's, Absolutely. I mean, of course, it was written many, many years later. But um, I read it prior to reading the, the book, and then again after, and mm. um, really different experiences. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I was only familiar with it beforehand due to the um, complete dismissal of Horkheimer and Adorno in the, mm. the, the famous uh, Grand Hotel of this quote. Mm -hmm. um, but I hadn't read the rest of this. But I agree that it's more of an epilogue. It's something that um, really dismisses the work as a whole after the fact. So we should probably just start with the first chapter. Sure. Maybe. Maybe okay. we could start with um, what is an epic? Or what is the difference between an epic and a novel? <clears throat> uh, so that, that being the main contrast of the work... Um, he's pretty clear to identify the epic specifically with Greek and or Homer specifically. Um, and the way I understood it um, is that the Greek epic is the authentic totality of a world in which everything makes sense. Everything is, there are no questions. There are only answers. Uh, the empirical phenomenon uh, of life itself are given meaning in advance. There's no, um, or rather the meaning that's attributed to the action is done in the acting. So Homer and Odysseus or any of these particularly epic heroes are heroes in context of their kind of grand uh, cosmic mission that's given to them. Um, after the epic, it's kind of like uh, 
the fall from Eden, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the, the totalized, uh, sense of life and individuality that the epic is supposed to represent becomes fractured when we get to the, or, uh, the, is it the enlightenment or the, uh, by the time we get to Dante with the really Christianized, uh, fractured. Or just past Dante, like the age of enlightenment, the rise of capitalism. Yeah, the phase is uh, typically like referred to if you look at like mythology as the era of creative mythology, and it's the idea of like the individual author, and the idea that like these are not collective stories, mm-hmm. which is one thing that I wasn't. I was surprised that there wasn't enough stuff about like multiple authors, especially when you talked about like Homer's work and most of these uh, epics that they weren't necessarily the works of one author. They're kind of a larger story is that an issue that like if it's one author or multiple authors of the works it does it does matter because at that point how i'm i part of my main skepticism of the work is my natural reluctance to accept the validity of totalities Mm. um and if homer as a person as an author or a collection uh, is not itself totalized then i think we already begin with some serious questions but for me, what stuck out uh, with this section is that um, I don't think there would be an issue with there being multiple authors behind what's named Homer, right? Because he really emphasizes, uh, he really sort of pines for this Greek community, this anti-individualistic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it really st- struck me as quite nostalgic, to be honest, uh, where uh, what was the epic was the story of all that nation. It was not the story of any one man, mm-hmm. whatever the hero may be. So... It, to me, that isn't a problem for him. Do you think it was, um, insofar as Odysseus is the man that any man could be in that way? He's the any man that any Greek man at that time, right. citizen, in that society, in, any citizen, yeah, in that time could be, yeah. And they, they are heroes. Like, if you extend it not just to Homer, but you also say, like, Gilgamesh, like, they are ideal symbols mm-hmm. of what a society represents and, like, it's not the detailed character study that you see in the later works in the novels that are like a very specific human being. I'd like to really flesh out the contrast in the Greek epic period of the book between Plato and Homer. Um, it seemed like Plato was being posited as an antithesis almost to Homer, as the great challenge to... Um, but it almost seemed to be a rearticulation of the same kind of totality, but um, a, a, a simultaneous fleeing from it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't, wasn't able to quite grasp it. It seemed like the idea was that Homer is the answer without the question. Mm-hmm. And by the time Plato comes around and starts questioning the answer, the answer gets farther and farther removed, which I think fuels the dialectic that eventually moves across history absolutely yeah i think this this um presses on the issue of forms and even just being consciousness of what form entails yeah so i feel like lukash was saying for homer's period there was no consciousness of form it was just immediate identification with it like Mm -hmm. in phenomenology just that first stage of sense certainty you don't really question it you don't interrogate it and then i think at one point he says you know first comes the epic then comes tragedy and then finally comes philosophy so um the way that you phrase it a contrast between plato and homer would be that Plato is making explicit the notion that these forms do exist, that there is some kind of external reality with which we can align ourselves. But for Homer, this is just kind of given, like the gods just kind of are there and we just kind of give into this faith or this fate that we're supposed to follow. Yeah, I mean, also 
with ancient Greek uh, epics, that form was also musical as mm-hmm. well. So like there is a, mm-hmm. it is a mix of forms when it's being engaged. Whereas when you get to later works, they may be somewhat lyrical, but definitely you can't say Dante or Paradise Lost are musical. They can have lyrical components with rhyming and the like, but they don't have that like explicit musical notes and tones that are involved in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with what um, you said about uh, nostalgia, like the way that he talks about this. And I wonder to the extent of which it was a complete totality, you know, just because mm-hmm. the novel kind of represents this form. Is that truly the individual experience in ancient Greece? Or is that just happens to be the circumstantial literary form? And is the literary form then a proper representative of what individual experience is in a given social totality? I really, uh, as... I think you two particularly know I'm my area of specialty is largely in Nietzsche um, so my preferred understanding of tragedy specifically Greek tragedy is Nietzschean um, and that is not exactly uh, totalized it's a homogenous system but dynamic so uh, that was part of what I wasn't really liking like I have all this Nietzschean uh, I don't know, preconceptions and biases, which is ironically the least Nietzschean thing I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it seemed like it was kind of, yeah, like the way Lukash even himself puts it. it. It's really tightening and limiting, reductive almost. Mm. I don't think there's any way that you could get through this book with a Nietzschean reading and come Tell me about out it. happily on the mm-hmm. end. No, um, I don't think you can reconcile those two. Everything's about essence and... Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Can we take a moment actually um, to talk about what we're, what we mean by totality or pardon me, what mm-hmm. Lukash means by totality? Yeah. Because um, I don't think it's necessarily 100% obvious. Right. Um, the, the impression that I got um, was that by totality, he, he's almost... Making that synonymous with the transcendental loci, with kind of the, the pre-established um, set of norms or rules or understanding of the role of the individual in society. You know, like it's it's not for me. It's contrasted to the imminence of being or the actual lived experience of individuals. Mm-hmm. And he talks about homogeneity a lot in relation to totality. With again, I'm gonna just keep going back to this. I think because it's something that gave me an itch throughout the book um, with this sense of nostalgia and. He, it seemed to be um, given that this uh, homogenous totality was some sort of normative good, and I didn't feel sold mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I mean, I think it goes back to this idea of like looking back at the epic as like shared stories, mm-hmm. and like this is definitely like I was really surprised by the fact that he didn't include Paradise Lost in there um, within this. But these are kind of these shared ideas and retelling the same stories, whereas when you look at the novel. Like even the novels that he approaches are still very old. They're not contemporary novels with his time period. And mm-hmm. so looking back at them, they're still even nostalgic in themselves. When was Dostoevsky writing? Um, I thought it was late 19th. It's like the like World War One area, right? Well, it was yeah. definitely before. I think it's prior, yeah. Late, yeah. late 1800s? Yeah. Yeah. It's not so like far off, but you're right. There's no, He doesn't cite any novels that are... He cites certain classics that are at least 50 years old. Yeah, and then even in the case of, like, um, Don Quixote, it's, like, 400 years old at that Mm -hmm. point. Mm -hmm. And I just bring this up because uh, 
like it, it's almost comical in the preface when they bring up the fact that um, Proust writes Ulysses is written um, Hemingway and uh, Scott Fitzgerald and Thomas Mann all publish like defining works of the, the genre of the novel and modernism in the 10 years after this book is written and I don't know how those fit uh, within this nostalgic view a lot of those actually make perfect sense to me within this, uh, especially Hemingway. It's all about these personal adventures and tedious details that just inform the reader's sense of self by adopting another self and gaining meaning through that, uh, particularly in um, The Sun Also Rises, I think, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, I think just characteristic of Hemingway's writing, which... I think fits well within, within this. My problem, at least with the book, is not so much whether or not it's... Um, a valid interpretation of modernism. I'm almost okay with yielding it some room there. Uh, it's the idea of whether or not this can still define our age of literature. Um, my big challenge to it in that would be if it could be said that we're in a postmodern kind of phase or whatever now, um, what are the implications of that? Is in contrast to the modernism where we have here, where it's the the adventure of meaning and, and, and the reader, uh, because it's not pre-given in advance like it is in the epic, um, is a postmodernism itself a totality in that you know it's it's simulacra esque kind of nature of self-referential no content like there's no remainder in the in the postmodernism kind of context right and the lack of a remainder is kind of what makes a totality and if that's true it kind of challenges the whole foundation of Lukács' idea of totality in the first place I think can you expand on that idea of a lack of remainder because I'm not sure I totally agree so the way I'm understanding totality is kind of that subject equals object is equals ought there is no outside of uh, really it's almost a lack of curiosity almost there's nothing left to be done it's a purely um, in, in Hegel's terms it's absolute it's not in reference to anything other than itself um, for Greece, though, not for um, everything since Dante and Lukash. Like, I feel like that's his understanding of uh, what an authentic totality would mm -hmm. be, or a totality mm -hmm. in which everything lines up. So the inauthentic totality. Yeah, and then postmodernism would just be a further elaboration of a fractured totality, okay. or a totality in yeah. which we no longer have enough ground from which to have our own meaning and aims in life, and we're left transcendentally homeless without direction. What is the purpose, then, of the postmodern novel? Because, I mean, looking at postmodern works, like the maximal, maximalist works of postmodern writing tend to be totalities, where they are writing about everything to encap encapsulate everything that's going on in this like very short window of time. And they understand that it is difficult because the world is much larger than it was uh, for the Greeks. Uh, so I think it maybe it's trying to take that epic form in a larger world, and that's postmodern writing, an awareness. Whereas the works of the novel, especially the works that he's talking about, 
are smaller. And this is kind of why I think Joyce is maybe not a modern uh, in that way. I, it's, it's probably contentious to say, but I, I almost want to put Joyce in more of a postmodern as a crazy precursor to this because um, I guess we'll have, I'll have to put this in the reference later, but in, in Derrida's essay, um, The Gramophone, where he's delivering a um, lecture on Ulysses to Joyce scholars, concluding essentially that there can be no such thing as a Joycean scholar because every single interpretation of Ulysses is equally valid as anything else. Um, at that point, it is kind of a totality uh, in the sense that it's entirely self-contained uh, without any seemingly distorted fracture. Like every line of flight almost is equally part of the totality as any other. Um, I, I don't know exactly how to finish this thought, but it seems at least out of place with Lukács' idea of modernism, if we can at least place Joyce with modernism. Is it helpful to say, though, that these, like, the postmodern novel of different um, iterations of it are still just essentially novels for Luka for Lukashian understanding? If we, bring, if we go to page 56 at the beginning of chapter 3, in his, con his presentation of the contrast, he says, the novel is the epic of an age in which the extensive totality of life is no longer directly given, mm -hmm. in which the imminence of meaning of life has become a problem, yet which still thinks in, to term in terms of totality. So be it Joycean or any other kind of postmodern novel, we're still thinking kind of in terms of totality. But I think for Lukash, the, the key point is that there's a gap that the, we can't identify with this totality. It's not like it was with the epic. We don't have a clear direction of how convinced. we should live our lives. We're not convinced. Mm -hmm. It seems fractured. And for, for Lukash, it seems that the, the strong points that he identifies in the novel or whatever is in its acknowledgement of this dissonance, of this lack of meaning that aligns with everyone's immediate experience of concrete reality. Uh, I think that's exactly right. I have written down on page 56, he writes uh, something else. I think I paraphrased it here. When the imminence of meaning has become, the novel is when the imminence of meaning uh, has become a problem, mm -hmm. but we still seek those totalities. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if we need to even go as specific as like certain novels. We can just talk about novel in a very broad sense mm -hmm. in contrast to... But is he right to say that all novels are continuing to seek totalities? Because mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't really sure of that. I think that they're... I don't know if I re could recall an excellent example, of, you know, off the top of my head, but I'm not sure that they all make that normative leap to seek totalities. Hmm. I feel like there are some novels that do seek to create that totality, but that, yeah, I agree. It's His examples not... certainly do, yeah. but... What does it even mean to think in totalities, exactly? I know we just talked about what a totality is, uh, but when I'm just thinking casually, not philosophically or whatever... I'm not thinking, okay, what I'm looking at is the object of a bottle of wine, but in my mind, that's just the sub... I'm not thinking about the relationship between uh, object and subject, or is and ought. Um, what exactly does it mean to think in totalities which we're never successfully completing? Is it that the novel thinks in totalities, or that the novel always kind of presupposes an a priori totality in its representation of characters and their biographies and the way that they play out. But it can't get there. But it can't get there. Yeah. I mean, could you or can't fully identify with it or... I mean, could it be that the novel, at least as Lukács views it and like within the sign, is like a dead text? 
that like when I look at a novel, it is like it can't be that complete totality because I don't think it. We understand that like this in itself is an object, not just like an idea. Like going back to the epics, uh, they seemed like they were totalities in like in name and also in function. Like it is the Iliad. Like mm. you can use like it is a uppercase uh, <laughs> proper noun idea that you think about, not necessarily like a book. Like you don't think like a, like there can be multiple translations of this idea, and they're all valid, and it's all one whole that we can think about, and it's not divisible necessarily. So the way I'm understanding it is then to think in totalities and not quite achieve that totality is as a modern to think I equals I, but to still have lots of remaining remaining categories of that I that aren't fully subsumed by the word or the idea of I, right? So I am Jordan. I like fish and the Grateful Dead and uh, these kind of books and I wear these kind of shirts um, and all those extensions of my idea of myself. It doesn't quite capture my idea of myself. Those, those are just kind of descriptive and right. identificatory um, characteristics. Like, the habits think of more, thinking totally. Yeah, more of the concern is what, what you see as your kind of role and meaning and how that plays mm -hmm. out in kind of literary presentation, right? Okay. So, like, again, we're, we're talking about novels, and I don't know if they're necessarily dead as much as they are just, well, maybe they're dead, but they're representations of an understanding of in a relation of an individual to society, what that society purports for meeting, how that individual responds, and how that kind of plays out. And I think it's key to look at it and say an individual, because we definitely hear what's inside the minds of these people. And I think one of the big ideas is that with an epic, you're not hearing the internal thoughts of these characters. Correct, yeah. They're functioning. And the same thing with like... That's big. With drama, you can hear them say... If they're saying anything, they're saying it to the audience. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a novel, someone is thinking about something. And... You could look at these no uh, novel as something that is inherently unstageable, and that you could like there is something that will be lost if you transition that to a stage. Whereas an epic, you can understand as something that could be staged and presented. Which goes back to community. We mm -hmm. read novels alone, and we see, you know, p Greek plays together. Hmm. Yeah. But here's another challenge: if the totality of Homer is that it's just as is and, and given. There's no necessary uh, internal thoughts going on that are accessible to the reader, and that the reader, therefore, is just kind of a spectator to the uh, unfolding events. Um, that already is fractured. There's a spectator, there's an audience, and an actor. Um, and secondly, then when you get to the modern, where there are uh, these internal thoughts happening, the reader isn't so much uh, a spectator or a member of an audience as much as they assume and adopt the protagonist's identity. Yeah. yeah. Almost making more of a totality. It's, it's different. Um, uh, Marshall McLuhan talks about this in the 1960s when he talks about cold and hot media, where if we look at the separation between the novel and the epic, a epic is a hot medium media it's something that you engage with that you need to project onto 
and that is something that you work with, mm-hmm. opposed to an awful being a cold medium, which is something that you just receive, mm-hmm. and that you don't project into it, the reality is there. I may have gotten the two mixed up, but there's definitely a difference between those two. Does that problematize Lukash's idea? I, I think it supports Lukash's yeah, idea. Yeah, I think it supports it. On page 80, he says, The imminence of meaning which the form of the novel requires lies in the hero's finding out through experience that a mere glimpse of meaning is the highest that life has to offer, mm-hmm. and that this glimpse is the only thing worth the commitment of an entire life, the only thing by which the struggle has been justified. So in the epic, we have, there's no interiority, there's no otherness, it's just merely this individual is seeking out adventure, right? It doesn't happen kind of within the self and within a struggle for meaning. They just kind of go out and do these do these things, go to places, interact with others. But um, once we transition to the novel, it's kind of happening more inside. And when I read this, I actually thought about um, Steinbeck's East of Eden, where it all kind of comes down to this notion of Tim Shell, like or you may, and that this this kind of profound idea seems to encapsulate everything that happened before it or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for Lukash, this is kind of um, it signifies a flaw um, in the very social totality that we're living in, that our mere art forms just have to grasp at like a certain little insight or some kind of mere idea, and that's all that we can really grasp onto, that we're so disconnected from this totality that we live in, that there's no place of meaning for us, that in the presentation of literature, all that we can do is grasp into some kind of um, minor nuanced insight that is elevated then to the level of some kind of divine accomplishment. Um, I th- that is something that I struggled with throughout this book, though. I found that so reductionist. He seems to have this predetermined bias against thought and, like, uh, more importantly, potentially emotion, I think. Um, he doesn't want to permit people to uh, speak openly about their inner worlds in such a way that would seem to him as some sort of self-indulgence. But to me, um, I don't share that same bias, and I find our... I'm, our inner worlds are so important and they can contain their own totalities in themselves. And if we share them with each other, we can work towards sort of a more community um, oriented literary or philosophical um, space. Right. So I just didn't get where he was coming from in terms of this, just maybe it was my perception, but a bias against uh, the inner worlds of individuals, which um, are not inherently uh, selfish or not inherently uh, indulgent or indicative of um, some sort of moral failing to reflect upon yourself and reflect upon your relations with others. Hmm. Did anybody else find that? Is... Sorry, do you want to... Um, I did find that, and I think maybe this is a good opportunity to, to uh, get the Marxism in here. Because I, I think this is kind of Lukash's main line of attack almost or or critique almost in that by socializing Marxism rather than politicizing Marxism as it's being conventionally done uh, he draws parallels but whether we agree with the parallels or not he draws them between the self-indulgence of the intensive novel uh, in relation to the commodities and colonial material that it's connected to um how does that speak to marxism what i mean can we find within that 
uh, a affirmation of Marxism, some kind of complete change is, I guess, like I'm trying, I'm trying to, are you looking for a project of revolution within Lukash's ideas or uh, a particular description of society? Yeah, I think it's more, more the second that, uh, what now, what, what, what now? Uh, I, I'm kind of partial to the idea, too, that sharing our disconnected totalities with each other in a community is what makes a dynamic totality as... Um, I, I'm reluctant to use the word, but the essence of a community, mm -hmm. um, which I think is almost lost in the nostalgia he prefers of the epic. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um, is this not exactly what he identifies as something very strong in Tolstoy's work, though? Mm -hmm. that, like, I feel like what he's identifying in the novel, this this interiority that you kind of take a lot of objection to, he's, he's acknowledging this as a flaw. Like, this is a, this is a problem with the world. This is something that needs to be fixed. This is a gap and an absence. Just because it's presented in the novel form in this particular way doesn't mean that he's praising this kind of novel or praising um, this kind of presentation of individual life. But he, I think he's just kind of acknowledging that it stems from the condition of the totality and that Tolstoy kind of points to hope, to the potential of transformation, to the potentiality that exists in communities of individuals. Um, here, let me just read this one quote um, on page 147, where he says, the nature of Tolstoy's does not have a plentitude and perfection that would make it like the relatively more substantial world at the end of Goethe's novel, a home in which the characters might arrive and come to rest. Rather, it is a factual assurance that an essential life really does exist beyond conventionality, conventionality, a life which can be reached through the lived experiences of a full and genuine selfhood, the self-experience of the soul, but from which one must irredeemably fall back into the world, world of convention. So the gap that kind of Lukash feels exists in novels up to Tolstoy is in this um, reducing all of life experience to some insight that that is all that one can do um, given the nature of its the individual's alienation from the rest of society and from each other but that Tolstoy in his presentation of characters and the way the characters interact with one another reaffirms that while convention is abstract and semblance it also can provide the way to getting towards a totality in which we do have aims and goals and understandings of ourselves that is more substantial and more self-authored than they are um, hitherto, like in other novel forms that they kind of come up as. Um, and I think it's important to mention here too that he never sees novels and the writing of novels as a form of agency. He doesn't think that like a novel and writing a particular novel can transform society. But I think that he wants to highlight that certain novels do better at illustrating the potentialities within our fractured society of getting towards a totality that is other than the totality that we're used to. So while we're totally alienated from each other and from our condition and from our own aims um, currently, um, the, the literature work that Tolstoy puts forth hints towards how we might reestablish a totality that is better suited to our own kind of goals and our own mm -hmm. control of those goals. And I appreciate that sort of optimism there toward the end of the book, but um, what I was more worried about is throughout the book, and I'm not sure if I have page citations for the specific um, sort of tendency, is he seems to bash emotion and bash um, um, what he sees as sort of indulgence in the novel. Um, and he, again, 
he sort of nostalgically pines for this time when in the epic you didn't uh, have to suffer the thoughts and feelings of of your hero but um, throughout the novel I did uh, pardon me throughout the book I did notice that again and again he uh, bemoans just uh, how they go on about their about their emotions and their uh, their yeah. God forbid that they're having feelings um, yeah. to put yeah. on the gender theory hat yeah that's I mean, where I was kind of going with it is, yeah uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the history of the novel is definitely dominated by female authors. I mean, if you look at the first novel ever written, um, uh, Tale of Genji, written by a female author, and it's like women have dominated the medium. And I think it's very clear that, I mean, there are ways of expressing emotions that you can do so in a novel that other forms tend to exclude. So then what is the significance if uh, the epic um, is more sensual uh, and the modern is more emotional? Uh, what significance do those two uh, qualities have for the respective forms? Is epic even a form? I was kind of unsure about that. Yeah. It, it's, it, a form seems to be a fractured totality. So like the novel is a form because it's like a building block. It's, it's one semblance of an otherwise broken system. Whereas the epic, which is this totally all-encompassing, I don't, e I don't even know what to call it. It doesn't quite seem to fit the standard of a form. See, I read form as pretty much synonymous with totality. And for the epic, form and totality is just kind of this completeness um, of the individual society. And then for the novel, it's this incompleteness. It's this fractured state, you know? So is form just approach then? Form is, like, I think it is a priori. Like, it's just this endless, it gets regurgitated in Category. all different kinds of um, dichotomies throughout the mm -hmm. history of philosophy. Form versus life um, for Lukash, or right. totality versus imminence. Like, he just kind of interchangeably uses I think, these different terms. Okay. I think I found the quote I was looking for. I'm very obsessed with this uh, problem in Lukash here. Um, so he's speaking about, uh, if I've got it cracked, uh, it's page 45. 45? And 45, and he's speaking about um, novels, and he says that the, in the middle paragraph of 45, he ends with, such loneliness is not simply the intoxication of the soul gripped by destiny and so made song, is also the torment of a creature condemned to solitude and devoured by longing for a community. I may have gotten that wrong after that, maybe in reference to something else. We might have to edit that out, pretty me. <laughs> just a brief <laughs> No, no post prattle. But um, just, I think what stuck out at me with that particular quote um, is that he de describing that, like, um, that indulgence in your loneliness as intoxication. It mm. seemed to make that moral judgment. That's why I picked out that particular quote. Uh, speaking of intoxication, just a quick side note, and then I, I want to deal with this. Uh, despite how little I actually agreed with a lot he was saying, I was totally intoxicated by his writing. Yeah. He is a crazy good line, writer. That first line. That first line. Can I just read it in a nice dramatic voice? Sure. No, I was joking, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> I, see, I don't see that quote that you read out, I don't see it as, like, overemphasizing the intoxication or romanticizing that intoxication. I see it as him saying that the novel is symptomatic of a loneliness that exists in society that produces the novel. 
And that might be a good segue because we have to do sort of a chicken versus the egg question here, which is like, is the no- I think the answer is the novel is, is responding to a social problem, but are, is there a feedback there? Or and arises how, from, arises yeah, from the social problem. Or uh, what, what level does the feedback occur at and does he adequately deal with the possibility of there being a feedback between the two? But I mean, you could also say that like the novel could not exist before, say, the printing press. Like, you need mm-hmm. to have an ability to yeah. produce a large amount of it. So you could say, yes, the novel is only possible in a industrial society or a industrializing society which has access to manufacturing a vast quantity of... Can we not novels? conflate novels with certain kinds of theater? Especially modern theater seems to express a similar nature that he is attributing to novel. No, because he, he himself addresses tragedy as kind of like a halfway point. And tragedy is the dramatization of tragedy. Like he talks specifically about on certain plays and the role of the chorus or whatever as kind of the halfway point to the novel. But I like, Andrew, what you were saying about just the role of technology into all of this. It doesn't seem to... Like, technology is kind of absence from this discussion. Yeah. Like, literary forms just kind of stem strictly from the totality, and there's no mediation of something like technology. So that's, that's kind of a fair, interesting idea. But in terms um, what you were saying, Lauren, about um, reciprocity between novels and totality, I don't think there's any reciprocity for him. I think he's very explicit about that novels, all they do, like, all aesthetics do for Lukash, at least my impressions from this work. Because I know that he writes a lot about aesthetics throughout his lifetime. I think his PhD was on aesthetics. I think he writes way later on it. So I, again, as someone who's coming to this green, I think we're all coming to this very green. <laughs> green well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here, at least, he's, he's very explicit that um, that the novel is just merely a representation of reality. It, it's not something mm-hmm. that can affect reality. He doesn't think that it can have a powerful force on reality. All it can do is represent. I don't think there's any reciprocity there. I just can't get on board with that. I just yeah. think that the... Novels are one of the most definitive media that we have consumed over the past couple of centuries, and I just I can't buy the idea that there's no reciprocity there. That novels don't in turn affect politics. Absolutely, or have yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, we don't need to go like solid facts on this, but found that uh, reading novels like uh, they did a study in Italy, and they found that students who read like the Harry Potter novels were far more empathetic afterwards and I think it's clear that like the media and the media has an impact on the people who are reading these works and the society is impacted by what stories are told mm-hmm. and so yeah it's not a shared experience uh, there's a big big argument right now in uh, films when they talk about how epics and like they use the same language epics were these things that you went to in the 50s and the 40s 60s and you interacted with them with a large group of people on a road show and something you interacted with. And now you look at films and they're a lot more personal. Uh, a lot of people watch them in their room, on a laptop. And so it becomes almost like a novel and that it's not a shared experience to the same extent. And so I think you can see some of those critiques, but I don't think that watching a movie by yourself is necessarily an act of loneliness in the same way that reading a novel isn't an act in which one is lonely. I think you're engaging with a fraction of the totality when you are reading those novels. Hmm. We are we are talking. You're talking about like the experience of interacting with art, though, and I think Lukács is talking specifically about the form itself. <laughs> so, I don't know if that ex- distinction clarifies, but that's that's. Uh, 
again, as a Nietzschean, I just found that so <laughs> weird that there are forms outside of representation, that there are these capital T truths that are supposed to be approximated by mediation and representation rather than done in the doing of them. So this is interesting because he has, he strictly has an ontology, right? Like he has like mm -hmm. an understanding of what totality is, what the individual is. There's this notion of the soul here that I'm open to, so I may as well read on page 87, where he says, um, the, there's an essential aspiration of the soul which is concerned only with the essential, no matter where it comes from or where it leads. There is a nostalgia of the soul when the longing for homeland, home is so violent that the soul must, with blind impetuousness, take the first path that seems to lead there, and is so powerful that this yearning can always pursue its road to its end. For such a soul, every road leads to the essence, lead home, leads home. For to this soul, its selfhood is its home. The writing is very powerful. Mm -hmm. I, I still find it hard because it's so pretty. It's so mm -hmm. well written. Mm -hmm. uh, just... But even this notion, this notion of goals and our understanding of the soul is so conditioned by the totality that kind of tells us what the soul is already. Like this, this seems like he's fallen a little bit into romanticism or lyricism totally. at that point. Mm -hmm. um, since he brought up lyricism, uh, we were all sort of asked to prepare questions. And the one, one of the ones that I prepared was, um, and genuinely a question I don't have a pre-prepared answer, I just really wanted to talk about it. What's his, uh, what, what's the deal with lyricism? Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't under, I could not get a, ha a handle on whether or not he thought that lyricism he seemed to uh, bounce back between um, an understanding of lyricism that could be an asset to the given to the given work or the given totality, or it could be a, a major detriment. And I'm wondering what you guys thought of that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you touched on that because it seemed very ambiguous in the way that he was mm -hmm. kind of presenting it. Like I, 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 where I kind of landed in my understanding of it was that for something like the epic, lyricism was a positive thing. Like, it did a good job at kind of expressing um, the actual condition and position of the individual in relation to its aims and means, but that in the novel, it's lyricism is kind of a risk, that it's too romantic, mm -hmm. that if you kind of fall in too much prose or whatever, you're not properly paying attention to the actual imminence of concrete reality, that you're somehow um, side-skirting it or not dealing with the real issues that like poetry or being too romantic is somehow a detriment in the novel. That's not properly showing the plight of individuals and societies that's misrepresenting and giving over into some kind of transcendental romanticism. Especially in terms of the medium of communication, I think it's uh, a very good point to bring up that in the epic, the lyricism is so central because it's the tool of memory. Uh, it's because there, it's not written down, there's no uh, press, uh, Rhyming and lyricism is a way to remember, and uh, I, I want to say that stories have to change between generations, uh, but maybe lyricism is a way to combat that. I don't know. I mean, I think that touches on what Andrew said earlier about technology, mm -hmm. right? There simply, there simply were those constraints. But then, what do we call technology? Can we call memory and, and lyricism a kind yeah, of Yeah, I don't want to go that far, but I want to say there <laughs> simply it, wasn't that technology yeah. we had mm -hmm. to make do. <laughs> I mean, we we could right. really call it technology and yeah. use a general open term for it, but I do think it's the, the form is essential to an epic and what makes it 
both accessible and completely inaccessible to other generations. I mean, this is the big thing when you talk like produce, or when you introduce an epic to someone in uh, high school, they're going to be compelled by it if they can overcome that burden of the form. Whereas when you present a novel to someone, you know, it's easy, it's, it can be well written and you can gain a lot more from the prose, but those works are definitely the most incomprehensible and classist works that you can't just toss War and Peace at someone mm -hmm. and have them read it and be like, oh, this is fantastic, <laughs> I know exactly what he was saying. Mm -hmm. But you it, also can't toss Beowulf at them. Definitely. So. But you could, and I would argue, and this is something I want to bring up, other contemporary epics, and my imagination of this is something like Star Wars or Star Trek, these are these gigantic, I would argue, totalities that are being presented that are like beyond the story of the individual and it's a much larger work. Um, early on uh, when Lukács is talking about how in a novel there's a beginning and an end and like that is the story. It's a um, totality of the whole of the existence of the novel whereas in an epic there is a totality and an infinite in which you just see a section of it. I think according to Lukács' own terms uh, star trek for instance couldn't be an epic um and i think that's because you know the idea of star trek as this sci-fi uh fantasy it, it fulfills the purpose of fantasy is to inform reality uh with a kind of meaning the hypotheticals that you know the what ifs the the questions without concrete answers I mean, I think that's, I, I'm not a terribly well-versed in, in Star Trek, for instance, but... <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, this is fascinating, though. Like, what, what state can the epic currently exist, like, in our current social totality? The fact that all the examples they're giving, I think, did you say Star Wars and then you said Star Trek? The fact, uh. that, it, the fact that it always needs to be fantasy says something about the inability for exactly. an epic form to exist currently. Mm -hmm. That if we want to have some kind of epic form or whatever, it needs to be so far removed from reality that it needs to be yeah. like explicitly science fiction or fantasy. That we couldn't, there is no equivalent of Homer for like a current story being, like, or to tell a story through kind of a, a Homer. We need Homer that suspension lines. of disbelief. That's Otherwise, it's, just... it's, it's incompatible with our social totalities. Yeah. I think that kind of um, that defends Lukash in a sense. It you know? certainly does, yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I'm just wondering if the epics that he brings up are also follow that idea. Like, I'm, I'm questioning, mm -hmm. it's like, how many people actually sat down and said, Athena saved so-and-so from the battle? Like, did Venus save um, Aeneas from the Trojan War? Like, did that happen? Or were these gods, like, kind of ideas that came out later... And kind of a mythology that involved was involved where people were kind of doubting and questionable. Totally. This is something that I think we've really cemented, like that we've all got the impression of, is this romanticization of epic at the time. Like, did the epic for the Greeks serve the individuals who read them what Lukash claims it does? Like, did they read epics and did they say, did they completely identify with it? Or was the epic, the Homeric epic, for someone in early Greece the equivalent to how we perceive Star Trek or Star Wars? Like, was it this grand tale, you know, that didn't really connect with everyday life? And this is where you get with the stuff on, like, Dante, like, the Divine Comedy. When you interact with it, you're like, well, I mean, this is what one poet 
conceptualized, you know, uh, heaven, purgatory, and hell. Like, but there's awareness that this is like his creation of these ideas. And like, that is definitely acknowledged at the time, but then afterwards, it starts to blur in our memory where we start mm -hmm. to think about it. it's like, oh, yeah, hell has these different layers. And you're just like, well, has anyone been there? <laughs> like, no one has like come back and said, yeah, this See, is. That's the modern in you ask. That's you of asking course. the question. Sure. Right? I, I wanted to maybe go to some of the more utopian things that he's pointing towards at the end that exist in, in Goethe and Tolstoy. Maybe look at what he identifies as Goethe's flaws and what he sees as um, good in Goethe. Good and Tolstoy. Did you guys have other things that you wanted to address yeah. before we? I wanted to bring up the fact that I thought his work was pretty classist. <laughs> like, for a like, is like I felt that the work was indicative of kind of a Marxist classism of, oh, we're going to talk about novels, but I'm not going to talk about the most popular novels of the last hundred years. I'm going to talk about the inaccessible novels of, you know, Don Quixote and like Tolstoy and I'm not even going to talk about Dostoevsky because I don't think I'm quite ready for that like the fact that like that's how he's approaching some of it I felt that it was definitely coming from a classist perspective especially with the novel as a mass media well these are the most discussed novels like at, mm -hmm. at the time right like talking about mm -hmm. Goethe like everyone reads Goethe at that point we don't read Goethe but like at that time like the 20th century that's this is the height of literary culture you read kind of Goethe and engage with it um so I, I think there's an inevitability of being someone who is engaged in theoretical studies to be classist to some extent but at the same time the flaws that he's identifying in Goethe is classism he's identifying that um ultimately this Wilhelm Meester which I admit I haven't read I don't know if you guys have read that one um, but he admitted ultimately falls back on an affirmation of the bourgeois status quo, that bourgeois life can somehow guarantee this or provide this space where soulless or transcendentally homeless individuals can somehow find themselves by engaging in literature. Yeah. And for him, for Lukács, that's a flaw. Like, this is a classist position that needs to be... I mean, this is a defining part of the, I'm going to butcher this, uh, building Roman, um, where the ideas of these developmental novels were like, um, of course, um, Goethe's piece is a prime example of it. Um, later on, about five to six years after this book is published, there's Steppenwolf, which also covers that same idea in, I don't know, a very by, by explicit Hess. way. Yeah, by Herman Hesse. Mm -hmm. And so, like, they talk about this kind of loneliness and the development of the bourgeois individual and the progression and the development of a person. And like, this is the central premise of kind of German novels, and then a lot of English novels focus in, on it. But the reason why I was talking about like, the classist element was the fact that like, he doesn't bring up Dickens, except for one line where he dismisses Dickens. Mm -hmm. It's like Dickens is like an indicative example of someone talking yeah, about class and British. It's on page 107. I think he said that he like ultimately embraces convention, right? At the mm -hmm. end, like the moral of all Dickens <laughs> stories is that you need to kind of give over and become one with what is conventionally, or the heroes in Dickens come to terms with their existing reality. Yeah. yeah. That's when it has, during his discussion of irony, right? Yeah. Yeah. That actually might be interesting to discuss. Irony, you. yeah. It is sort of a theme throughout the work. Absolutely. And I did struggle with it a little bit, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I took 
if I can just say what I like, I'm just please, yeah, please. I took irony as just kind of a fundamental aspect of the novel, as because mm-hmm. all heroes in the novel um, are striving kind of for a meaning or a kind of purpose that ultimately the totality doesn't provide them. Mm-hmm. So irony is just an essential characteristic of. And there's that duplicity that's inherent to irony, right? You can't have irony in a totalized system because what makes it ironic is that the is and the ought don't quite line up. And this could be the example. I mean, I've been reading um, Foucault's work on Nietzsche lately, and the idea of like irony is ample in the works of like Oedipus and then these tragic works is that it's, tragedy is defined by irony, where you're like, oh yeah, that person is going to make the wrong call. It's like, we all know that Oedipus is married to his mother, but the characters don't in it don't know. Just like in a novel, we're aware of certain elements that are definitely ironic, and we're always aware of that um, irony, whereas in an epic, you can have an unironic epic. Like, it's just a hero. Like, the hero is good. There's no irony. Mm-hmm. There's no cynicism about having like, Achilles being amazing and the best. Mm-hmm. Is it a crutch for Lukash, though, irony, or is it something else? I think it's just the nature. Just the nature, um, okay. In that, like I was saying, that there's a kind of duplicity about irony. There's a, a multiplicity. So, like, this is ironic because I would have thought this, but this is what happened. Or, rather, this thing that's ironic has multiple meanings into itself. Um, I don't know if I'm doing justice to the concept of irony here, but that can't really happen in an epic, right? Because it needs to be a one-to-one manifestation of meaning rather than the weirdness of irony. What were your impressions, Laura? Like, what were... Mm -hmm. um, What did you take to be irony? Um, With irony, um, I really just wrote... With this particular question, I wrote more questions than I had answers, to be honest with you, and it might have been simpler than I gave it credit for, but... Sometimes with his tone and with his very lyrical way of writing, I did struggle with um, with his sort of, uh, um, uh, pardon me, with his moral sort of content. Um, yeah, I shouldn't he, say moral, pardon me, but... Um, no, it's just content in general. Like, he, he doesn't yeah. really introduce concepts well. If anything, no. the best definition of concepts come, like, way in after mm-hmm. he's already applied them and used them. Mm-hmm. And irony is a key example of that. Like, he doesn't really, yeah. like, provide definition of irony. You just kind of have to conclude based on how it plays out in the role of the whole analysis. Yeah. I'm also realizing that how often I'm using nonverbal gestures to mm. agree with someone, which is perfect for the podcast medium. I noticed that kind of at the beginning. These are birth pains. <laughs> yeah. Like just saying, like, we're, we're saying things like you. We're pointing, we're pointing <laughs> to saying you. We just need to be better at, like, names when we're acknowledging each other. And For I, you, my instinct listeners. to say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but yeah. I think in actual noise, that doesn't yeah. sound very good. But I think irony is crucial in um, getting getting to a form of novel, or more accurately, a form of totality that um, more aligns with epic. Like We need to kind of get beyond irony in a certain way. And I think mm-hmm. what he's identifying in Tolstoy as positive things, mm. which are these attempts to construct meaning based on recognition that convention is something that merely arises and that we can construct so there thereby by making and creating institutes by having to say in institutions or whatever with one another um we can be unironic we can be authentic we can kind of erect aspects of a new objectivity or a new totality 
And I think for Lukash, this comes up in fragments in Tolstoy, like little aspects of it. And then at the very end, I mean, in the last two paragraphs, he says, Dostoevsky is like, this is, this is the right way to go. It's not even a novel anymore. It's a new form. This is pointing in the right direction. And I read later that, or I read at some point, or in some place, that he was planning on writing a whole book on Dostoevsky, and that he viewed theory of the novel as kind of a preface to this kind of bigger work. I see that. Right. Um, I found some quote uh, as during this interim, I've been looking for my notes on irony, and I found some of them. And I think um, what I've come to is um, where I got a little bit confused with it. He writes, "For the novel, irony consists in this freedom of the writer in his relationship to God." What page is this? Sorry. Oh, pardon me. That's ninety-two. Page 92, for the novel, irony consists in this freedom of the writer in his relationship to God, the transcendental condition of the objectivity of form giving. Irony with intuitive double vision can see mm-hmm. where God is to be found in a world abandoned by God. Mm-hmm. Irony sees the lost utopian home of the idea that has become an ideal, and yet at the same time, it understands that the ideal is subjectivity, subjectively and psychologically conditioned so on and so forth. Um, and I just found that um, a little bit confusing in the context of um, his thesis here because it sounds like he is saying that irony allows for the novel to get towards something closer to totality because it gets it closer to, uh, you know, a capitalized G God. Um, and then on the next page he writes, irony the self-surmounting of a subjectivity that has gone as far as it was possible to go is the highest freedom that can be achieved in a world without God. Hmm. So that's where I was sort of posing it to the room. I found that to that be a little bit it. disconnected. Yeah. Uh, from that definition, until that last sentence there, which now has put a, a fork in my thought, I actually would have been able to think of Tolsoy as kind of an ironic writer in that, mm-hmm. mind you, my knowledge of Tolsoy is rather quite shady, but uh, from what I remember of reading his stuff is that, oh, there's this character who's, you know, ostensibly this way, but the more you get to know this character, really, they're an individual deep down who's a universe of their own, not just this two-dimensional image, this two-dimensional representation. Um, and at the last moments, they embrace this individuality within them and connect it, or maybe with the convention outside them. And that, in a sense, is kind of ironic in the sense that what is beneath the surface doesn't exactly conform to it. There's, there is that sense of, um, what, what was the word he used? The, the word I was using was duplicity, but he, he's a double meaning or something. I'm sorry, I should. Uh oh, I lost uh, 63. But in the end, that kind of irony is able to uh, take the reader or the subject out of their preconceptions of uh, convention or individuality and move it towards that other. I think, which is it the God language that's kind of throwing you off a little bit? A little bit. Yeah, for me the key line is irony sees the lost. So in kind of presenting like an ironic presentation of the individual unable to kind of come to terms with his meanings, um, the writer of the novel has a relationship to God in the sense of they're identifying that the forms or totality of society are completely ruptured and they aren't kind of intact as they were with the epic. Could you say that it's an, uh, like going back to nostalgia that irony that is nostalgia to this past, like that there's an awareness of this past that no longer exists. So it's a bridge, kind of. But what a bridge that we can never cross. Like it's it's a yeah. nostalgia Ooh. for a past that we can never <laughs> return to, right? Because we acknowledge that the forms are created, 
but we acknowledge that now forms need um, yes. to be created, that we have an authorship role in them. Okay. And that's why the novelist is a second-rate god. I have to find that quote. He says that in here. No, no, it makes it makes sense in the context of what Laura presented too. That the, the novelist plays the role of God by showing that the forms are incommensurable mm-hmm. with individual experience. And then we can look at the fact that the most ironic works of literature are this postmodern works that really drive home the fact that you know the bridges have been burned and like we cannot go back to that era. And, like, we can't even accept a hero. Like, it is cliche to have a hero nowadays that is actually, like, a, a Superman figure mm-hmm. or Achilles. Like, you can't have Achilles. We have anti-heroes now, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I take most postmodern authors, though, as kind of relinquishing the ability to get back to totality in that sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I agree to some sense that we can't get back to the naivety of the epic, like, of Homer. And I'm that not even convinced of that, though. It's uh, what I think is that like like postmodern authors go too far in saying that there's kind of no meaning in any kind of substance or meaning that we can construct with one another. Like they, re- I'm thinking of Bojard and like a complete relinquishment that for him posits this um, kind of unchecked freedom to do and play with whatever we want without any kind of repercussions socially. For for me, that was a lingering struggle throughout this book. I was like, what if I just don't care about getting back to a totality what if we're not totally attached to that and what if we don't need the sort of greek image of the world in which the acorn contains the oak tree yeah um what if we don't miss it or what if it wasn't even true to begin with and very yeah what if it wasn't true <laughs> you know, to begin the, with? the greek yeah. totality of the citizens is already such a hugely minuscule portion of whatever mm-hmm. counts as greek at that time right yeah. this totality doesn't apply to the slaves who built greece yeah. right no this uh and it at the same time me as essentialistic exactly yeah absolutely uh, which is i think part of the fiction that he's trying to sell in, in a way um like i'm not convinced of the naivety of the greeks i you know as we um in um Horkheimer and Adorno's um, shit, what's, what was that? Dialectic, Dialectic of Enlightenment. There's that whole portion, whether they're right or not, they're at least... Um, they're reading on Odyssey, yes. Yes, yeah. where they're talking about, you know, the, you know, duping the gods, at, like sacrifices, this way of getting around these... Uh, Cut in, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? So whether or not that's true, absolutely, at least it, it provides a way of thinking of a Greek as not entirely convinced by the mysticism or religion that totalizes their way of thinking, but as a, as, as a, as a, as a tool, as a, as a way to do, or I don't know. Then again, that reading of, um, so the reading of Odysseus as a fantastic hero is actually something that's a modern understanding of Odysseus because Odysseus is definitely portrayed as a villain for the most part in pre, um, pre-modern understandings like roman understandings of odysseus are definitely of villain for example if you look at like uh, ajax um the play by it's either euripides or uh, sophocles talks about how he was a horrible person and that he tricks his friend into killing mm-hmm. himself and like odysseus is presented as a bad guy but aeneas and hector and achilles are presented as heroes because they're good human beings like there is nothing cynical about liking Achilles or being like Achilles. That's actually really interesting to think about. Um, yeah, pre pre modern understandings of Odysseus. 
But maybe um, if we don't agree with this whole romanticism for the totality, we can at least agree with his analysis of the fractured state of the individual and their relation to totality in sure. kind of late capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. This idea that all of our goals and aims or whatever that are kind of handed down to us aren't commensurable with the reality in which we try to actualize them. Right? Like all of us are a whatever, a paycheck or two away from not being able to pay rent. We don't, we don't have idea, any ideas of if we're going to have a kind of potential successful career in this thing that we're striving for. And that's just, that's just one face of what individuality is across the board. Like mm-hmm. all, I'm sure all our friends in different professions have that same kind of scarcity that's kind of undercurring all their kind of aims and ambitions. So that disconnect with objective reality, that all our individual goals and what our desires and ideas of fulfillment are don't align with this reality in which we find ourselves. I think that is key to um, what Lukash is problematizing in contemporary society through the novel representation. I think that's ultimately also what makes him a Hegelian in this instance. Um, this whole work, in, in a sense, can be thought of as an aestheticization of the unhappy consciousness, um, as like uh, the self that is alienated from itself and eventually finds a representative of u- universality to you know, take up advice and embody and then change again. Whereas the novel here seems to play the role of the priest who tells you what to become and how to change to, to approximate that essence. Um, I really like that. And, and also within the novel, as in terms of the characters of the novel and their worldview that they're being told to fulfill or actualize. Yeah. One uh, of the things that I liked that uh, Lukash brought up was the idea that novels are temporal. And there's a specific idea that like in a novel, their time makes sense. Like you have a young man growing and developing into older men and it's biographical it's biographical yeah. in nature so you see them go from weak periods to stronger periods to weak periods but you see them grow as a person whereas in the epic form they talk about like kind of, mm. you're always at this peak area there's this idea that like um, there's one line saying that Nestor is always old just as Helen is always beautiful that there isn't a development of this character and I think this goes back to this idea of the Bildung Roman about the development over time is the key element I think to modern identity is that there is progress and that in an epic there isn't necessarily progress everyone has their place and state because it's a totality you can't have that shifting totality in which things change over time the characters are as they are from the beginning. Like they don't have moments where they change who they are. They react differently to different events. Mm-hmm. So it's like Satan in Paradise Lost is always the same person. Just different events have happened to him that force him to react to things based off of the event. Um, this goes back to the idea that the epic heroes are passive. That like they are shifting and changing based off of what happens to them. Whereas the hero in a novel is developing over time and is actively changing their environment. Yeah, I think that's astute. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, just to go back to the preface as epilogue, that's one aspect that Lukash liked most of all in this book when he's reflecting on it. He says, I love my analysis of time, particularly (laughs) in, in Tolstoy or whatever, in differentiating this kind of conventional time versus the time of nature versus these 
And I feel like at the very end, it almost goes, drifts into the theological or the messianic a little bit when he talks about these ascetic moments in Tolstoy that kind of hint towards the future, you know? Uh, though it's interesting because Tolstoy himself didn't view War and Peace as a novel. Yeah, like he actively said, no, my novel is Anna Karenina. War and Peace isn't a novel. And I think that's similar um, to how Victor Hugo described Les Mis. He didn't, under didn't describe it as a novel. Like, there's a famous uh, comment where um, he sent a, the transcript to his publisher and then sent a telegraph, and the telegraph was just a question mark. And then the response by the publisher was just an exclamation mark. <laughs> <laughs> this idea is like when you look at like some of these works that we could say transcend the novel and may not be a novel but may in fact become an epic, they are defined by the fact that they are no longer um, the same entity. If they're not the same beast for sure, they walk between the two of them. And so I think there are works that try to become epics and I think they're close, but they live in a context where they can't be understood as anything other than a novel, just as the Divine Comedy can't be understood as anything other than an epic because of the period that it exists. Hmm. Great. Uh, was there any particular novels that, after reading this, you're like, I gotta go read that book? Was there one Ooh. analysis that stood out as... You mean with a, with a new vengeance, or what? <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> open question. I mean, I feel like I would have loved this book more or enjoyed this book and understood it if I had read Don Quixote. Mm. Um, I've tried. I've gotten maybe 200 pages in to that. <laughs> what is it, a thousand or so? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a beast. I want to read that good to book, the um, Meister Wilhelm or whatever, because mm -hmm. so, he speaks so favorably about it until the last moment, until it falls into virtual ideals or whatever. It's not that long. It was sitting book, on, yeah. yeah, it's sitting on my bookshelf mm. elsewhere. Uh, it's not that long. It's just, you know, you don't have time to read everything that you want to read. Yeah, but lots of time to buy all the things you want to read. Oh, yes. Especially used bookstores. It's a big problem. Just stay away from them. You just got to stay away from used bookstores. <laughs> $2 for a book I'd be meaning to read? Sure, I'll get 10 <laughs> I'll read Bruce one day, of course. Put them on the shelf. Oh man, don't give me um, This made me want to reread Dostoevsky mm. um, and see how I came across it having just read this. Right. Where would you start? Um, I think I would. Re I, I've, I've read Crown Punishment and I would reread it as it is my white whale and I'd like to reread <laughs> it. It's the white whale that I've conquered and now I'm going back for it. I think it's Brothers K that does the best. Uh, and that um, I have not read. I, I love Brothers K. Oh it's my probably God. my favorite novel. It's, it's wonderful. Again, it doesn't really even feel like a novel, so I'd be interested to read. Maybe later, he, I know he didn't write the book, but maybe there's fragments in later works of what he envisioned as Dostoevsky being somehow um, beyond the novel in some sense. Mm -hmm. But like, I take reading that work, Brothers K, as uh, like a presentation of philosophy at some point. So oh. you have the different brothers embodying Theology, different psychology. positions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even in terms of like a di like, it almost seems like a Socratic dial or a Platonic dialogue. And the way that he sets up four characters has an issue. Each embodies a particular subject position, mm -hmm. and they just discuss an issue throughout. Like it's such a great read. Um, it did make me think of *Crime and Punishment* when he sort of straddles Dostoevsky between drama and uh, novel. Mm -hmm. um, in that, when you read this book, you can't uh, get very good insight into the characters' um, subjective uh, inner world. Um, so it is just—it's this weird thing where it's like you have a single. 
uh, subject, but you also have just events happening and you're not getting a very good uh, play between the two and it leaves you with this like unease, right? So I did sort of start to reflect upon that reading this. Yeah, no, I know I'm reading the double later the double by Dr. Eske later on the summer for a reading course. It's one of the short stories, right? Yeah. It's a good and one. The focus is uh, understanding it as narrative philosophy. Yes. And it's interesting looking at a lot of the novels, like the novels that came out after this book was published, after um, The Theory of the Novel, are dr very philosophical and like even further um, developed. And it's interesting because he talks about some of the earlier works that are definitely not novels, but it's like the early form of it. But it would be interesting to see what his comments were on um, Sartre and Camus later on. I know he definitely brings up Sartre. Mm -hmm. Briefly, briefly, but one or two comments aren't enough to kind of grasp his understanding of those words. I, I, I actually disagree. disagree. Yeah, where what did Sarah write before nineteen eighteen? Oh no, this is in the preface. Oh, the preface. Yeah. Okay, okay. But there's the, also moments. I think I wrote a it's big a weird, it is caps a weird lock. Um, Self-hating. Sartre in this book at some point, but I, I probably won't be able to find it. So. I think Sartre is totally. Like, just reading in between the lines, Sartre seems to be the poster boy for the modern, right? Like, mm -hmm. as existence precedes essence. That's mm -hmm. the question of existence. That is the whole issue of modernism. Um, so whether or not it's dealt, you know, explicitly, it's easy to get the implicit view, I think. What's, what's interesting there is that he, he predates Sartre. And, like, I feel like a lot of these ideas, because we talked about Odysseus earlier, I don't know if we're still going to keep this in or not. At, yeah. at this point but um like i felt the odysseus chapter builds on this a lot like i think there's a lot of ideas that adorno because i think adorno in that chapter um builds on or whatever that are already here in the first place mm -hmm. it's really interesting so he like as a figure i mean he's inspired so many he inspires i think so many of the 20th century thinkers that we kind of read and love regularly you know so i am curious to i would love to read history and class consciousness at some point i don't know if we'll do it for this or yeah i mean there the nice thing about the, the quote-unquote canon mm -hmm. of theory books and philosophy in Western society. This is pretty big. And, like, so we can come back to it if we want to. And I think... Um, was there any final final words anyone wanted to say on this point? We've kind of said a bunch of final words, but... Uh, so my final thought on this piece is that despite my many challenges of it, I really enjoyed seeing those influences on the later thinkers or literary whatever whether i'm imagining it or not like for instance just the terms like intensities and extensities that's like that's Deleuze language right there and i can think of nothing farther than uh lukash right now than Deleuze, and yet seeing the lineage and possible connection and just the opportunities for conflict that end up being quite productive this was a great read what I find interesting is the fact that in the hundred years since he wrote this, um, the number of new mediums out there and new forms has been exponential. When you look at the fact that radio and television and film and online internet uh, activities and video games, everything has just exploded. When you look at the fact that when he was writing, the novel was new and was this new artistic and aesthetic form mm -hmm. and then 
after, like, kind of after his death, it's just excited so drastically that I don't know if you can have a, even like kind of a, a description of the novel with such an importance for any new form of media. I don't think you can say film and like theory of the film and have it be as um, absolute and relevant. Total. Yeah. Trying to avoid using the yeah. same <laughs> I know. I found that actually throughout this podcast, I've been trying to like actively not say the same words mm-hmm. as I. But uh, for me, like the concept of transcendental homelessness, or whatever, I think it was a really fascinating yeah. one that stuck out and accurately describes the condition of modernity, but also our, our current state. You know what I mean? Like this, this fact that we don't have a kind of objective, a priori structure that indicates to us how we should live our lives, what kind of goals we should pursue, what constitutes meaning, you know? And then for me, the fact that he kind of ends in Tolstoy and, and holds that point of community with others as this um, messianic light from which we can find meaning, that really resonated as kind of a solution to this transcendental homelessness in a way, that we don't seek it in transcendental structures anymore, but that we find it in engagement with others, in enlightening each other, in, in laughing together, just whatever, you know, if it's an institution, if it's a hangout, those kinds of things um, replace for me the meaning that transcendental structures, once we realize that we just create those forms, um, just evaporate. And I think this is what a lot of the postmodern novels really get at. And I think they really drive home um, this concept in a way that the modernist works are expressing this idea. But I think the postmodern works are incredibly aware of this idea. And like, they are fixated on the idea that a lot of us have this transcendental homelessness. Um, I mean, one work that I would love to bring up and have people to read would be like Infinite Jest. I was just, I, you're going to say Infinite Jest, yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> when I'm reading it, I'm like, it just was this complete thing where I'm looking at it and like, it's trying to explain my, the entire position of Western society and Western consumerism and everything and addiction in such a complete way that I see just like the failure of um, the epic as possible anymore. Mm-hmm. The one I read it is like it's not even it's not a novel anymore, but it's just like this giant text that is the totality of of a kind of a fictionalized understanding of modernity. That's really cool. Yeah. Have you have you mm-hmm. read that before? Oh yeah. Cool. I mean I would love to read it again and probably maybe start to understand it upon the second read. Maybe that can be like a side podcast or like yeah. a bonus episode. <laughs> yeah. I would love, I think it's still legitimate to do some novels. Um, I agree, yeah. Why be bound by strictly theoretical text? Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess in terms of final thoughts, uh, I guess the thing that I couldn't get away from was that I just don't share certain predispositions that he should that he holds um mm-hmm. i just simply don't long for although i long for like um the idea of a community a total a community of totality i don't long for this sort of greek understanding of the world in which there is uh, no difference between subject and object and i think it's perfectly fine to have um subjective worlds that we share with one another and i find mm-hmm. the novel to be a very comforting thing in that view and i think uh like andrew just pointed out like we've done great things with the novel in the past hundred years or so we have novels like infinite just that really play upon the genre and really work on what it means to have these subjective experiences and to relate them to one another a book like gravity's rainbow has something like a couple hundred characters that all interrelate in some way or another and i think that does great things for our um, attempt at community and our attempt at regaining um 
the meaninglessness which with he bemoans a loss of um so i just don't share the same um all of the same concerns that he has so that was a bit of an obstacle for me um yeah that's kind of my closing statement <laughs>